0: The theme for the afternoon talk is The non-self is the middle way The title is not easy to understand, so hmm, good luck with the talk (laughs) Um, Firstly, (laughs) a little uh, history lesson, if I may be so bold there is a remarkable collection of uh, discourses initially written in the Pali language, the language of the Buddha. It's a sister language to uh, Sanskrit. And these discourses, it is said, that they were written down some... 300 years or so after the death of the Buddha, It is said that in between time the monks and the nuns, the Sangha, the nomadic homeless ones, recalled, recollected, chanted these discourses and then they were put down into the uh, written form. There is a rather generous spirit, in fact, at the beginning of these discourses, which number in total around 10,000. Some, uh, just a few lines, half a page, a page, several pages, and the long-length discourses might run to ten, twelve pages or more there. And they start with this generous spirit EVAM sutam. Thus have I heard. And for the reader, for she who he who takes an interest, those initial words are saying, in fact, to the reader not this is some absolute truth not that this is the word of God not that it's uh, the nature of reality but saying, thus have I heard it could have been said like this And from that initial flow on, there is, generally speaking, uh, an invitation to make use of these uh, ancient texts, not because they have an inherent importance, but perhaps can contribute to shedding light on our life and finding ways that these discourses called sutras S-U-T-T-A-S, in Pali S U T R A S in Sanskrit that these sutras sutras can inspire <coughs> us and encourage us to explore, to meditate and to inquire. So from time to time with the uh, talks here with you, I, Of course, make reference to the Buddha, and in fact i 'm drawing on avam me sutam. that 's have I heard in my case that 's have I read and the Buddha is a radical he 's a revolutionary, and he is willing and did question anything and everything. <coughs> So, to take an example, in the tradition of the time, and I mention the past because it's relevant in the present, a strong view of the yogis was that all spiritual work had, in a way, two flavors to it. One was Unity with Brahma, Brahma is the Sanskrit and the Pali word for God the Creator, no different in meaning whatsoever from Jehovah for the Jewish community, from God for the Christian community, from Allah for the Islam, Muslim community. So the yogis wished to achieve oneness with God. This was the whole purpose of the religious, spiritual life. And the second which went with it, especially in the yogi meditation tradition, was to realise one's true self. To find one's true self. And in finding one's true self, one was liberated, One was enlightened, and one had found one's authentic, higher self. To put it politely, the Buddha kind of rubbished both views. It created a stir in very deeply religious India. And with the first... He dismissed the view that there is a God out there who is the creator. Essentially, there is no evidence for this. And if this God out there who is the creator loved us so much, why is there this appalling suffering on this earth? And he took the word Brahma God, the Divine, and moved its location, I regard it as a brilliant uh, insight, from an external God out there and referred to abiding with God as a deep inner experience which is realised and shown to us through a profound love and friendship with life, to compassion, which is the action to relieve and end the suffering of others, to a remarkable appreciative joy for much which life reveals to us, And fourthly, uh, an equanimity, which means the extraordinary ability that we as beings on the earth have to be really steady and stable and grounded in the most difficult situation. As he said, we can be like a mountain in a hurricane we have that power. So he said, one who abides with God, Brahma, Vihara, one who abides with God, experiences, knows, deep love, friendship, kindness, compassion and the action to end suffering, appreciative joy and equanimity. And this is the confirmation. Because as we know, history, and it continues to show itself, how easy belief in God has led to violence, exploitation, abuse, uh, credible discrimination against women, patriarchal systems, and much, much more. And the Buddha dismissed it. This itself, remember in India with the Brahmins who believed we hold the message of Brahma, it sent shockwaves. Shockwaves. And the same teaching, this is of the Buddha, said equally one may believe in God there is no problem in this tradition of those who sincerely and deeply believe in God the creator God uh, Brahma, the creator of God, Allah if it reveals love and friendship and much more if that is the outcome and for others There is no belief in God. But there is deep love and deep compassion. So it's not the belief that matters, it's what the heart reveals. And it could be worth your while, while you are here, possibly for some, what your relationship to G O D. We can reflect on these things. Some people reject the word. It's your right. Uh, other people are not sure about the relationship to G O D. Other people love the language of G of God, of G O D really comfortable with it. This tradition says all three relationships are fine. Appreciate, touch by love the word. No thank you, not my cup of tea at all. Actually at this time in my life I'm not sure. I'm interested. So the exploration of the human experience at times may take an interest in that which is transcendent beyond our ordinary frame of mind something beyond it to take an interest in this the yogis came bless them they're uh, uh, still around in various forms, including in the hall here and uh, elsewhere. And were committed to their asana. If you ask the yogis of India, say the word asana, they would think sitting cross-legged. That's how it's used in, amongst the yogis. The development of, uh, uh, of yoga into a variety of asanas In the ways is relatively uh, recent, but in the everyday sense of the ancient yogis, (coughs) it was the sitting, to find the higher self, the true uh, self. (coughs) The Buddha's view (coughs) and concern about this is in the complexity of our inner life. There's a simple question on this point. Who on earth is saying, Aha, I have found my true self? Who is making this claim? Or, I have inside of me my false self, my problematic self, my difficult self. And I have inside of me my true self. Who is making this division? Who is saying I I have a true self and I have a not so true self or a not true self? Who is making this duality? Who is creating this division? between a true and a not true, or a true and a false. Is the one who is making this division, is that the true self talking? Or the false self talking? Problem. And if one decides, oh that's my true self talking, and it's not my false self, Who is the one who is deciding this? Or if it's, oh no, it's just my false self, I'm just caught up in dualism. Oh, if I'm caught up in dualism, who is deciding this dualism? Problem. (coughs) This self, higher self, lower self, better self, not so good self, true self, false self. So, the, the Buddha shook up spiritual religious India. I have some of my old teachers uh, of the same metal. I do apologize, I've inherited some of it. Ajahn Bhutathar in Chaya, in Sohamok, the great radical reformer there, during his lifetime in uh, uh, Thailand being there with him during the uh, uh, 1970s I would witness the waves so sometimes in Thailand amongst the rich and the powerful some would say Vajjambuddhadasa oh, Thailand we have this arahant this great liberated enlightened human being all praise would be going to him. Then a few weeks, months later, a year or two later, to be a different leadership, a different prime minister, a more right-wing prime minister. But at that, he's a communist. (laughs) He shall be disrobed. He is not a true respecter of the Thai tradition. And then that view would go away, and then another one would come in. And then he wrote a book called Dharmic Socialism. Oh, did that cause a storm in time? So he spent (coughs) sixty years in the forest, hearing praise and blame, because of the radical views that he expressed. He said to me once, and to others, a memorable one-liner. The Buddha would have agreed. He said flowers, candles, incense, temples, chanting is religion for thumb sucking kids. Oh. <laughs> He never had a temple in the forest. No interest. Just free spirit, not afraid. And then of course, as it often happens, when he died, suddenly the people of Thailand loved him forever. (laughs) Within a few weeks, They had four postage stamps in his precious name. This happens with people. Controversial during their life, difficult, problematic, outspoken, and when that person dies, oh, wonderful teacher, wonderful monk, etc. Interesting humans in our relationship. So the Buddha, in this exploration of the self, in the radical view there, he gave his first talk, probably five minutes walk from here, he spent quite some time here, he spoke with his friends, He gave up the intensity of such a practice went to Bodhgaya and had a memory and it was a small memory and the small memory was when he was young he doesn't say the age six, seven, eight or ten of sitting under a tree, watching his father, King Suddhodana, ploughing the field to um, mark the beginning of the rice season. This was the custom of the, the royalty. And while sitting under the tree, he remembered, this is a 35-year-old man, Wow. Well, I experienced calmness clarity happiness a depth of concentration a sense of well-being I was reflecting could this be a really wonderful doorway to a deep awakening and he left the hard practices here went to Gaya. Then the realisations came, and the first thought soon after was let me walk the hundred and eighty kilometres from Bodhgaya to Saranath. I have my five best friends living here in the jungle, it's called the Deer Park at that time. I'm going to talk with them about what I realised. When they saw him, they saw that he had put on some weight. Oh, he's not a serious yogi. He should be as skinny as skinny. Sometimes when I was a monk, not because of any virtue, I got very thin, very, very thin. And sometimes the monks would say, under his robe, there is only a coat hanger. So, he then began to speak. This first talk is of relevance to every human being. It's an extraordinary talk. He said, human beings, I'm putting it in contemporary language, are concerned with the self and in two directions. One direction is the building up of oneself, self-importance, accumulation for the self, being somebody. inflammation of the self, self self-promotion, self-advertising, that's one, the building up of the self. And the other of human beings is the swing in the opposite direction to the putting of oneself down, not feeling good enough, feeling a failure, a lack of self-worth, self-negativity, self-hate, self-harm, self-abuse. And we, as human beings, can spend our life moving between these two extremes. The self of building oneself up into self-importance and being preoccupied with that. And my goodness me, we live in a dogmatic culture. East, West, North and South, I'm talking about on the planet. Build yourself up. Get this. You can succeed. Achieve, gain, gather, have, own, possess. Tremendous pressure. and the opposite to this and often it is a running away from it is the self-hate, the self-blame, not feeling good enough feeling to be a failure and of course all the comparing. So he said the middle way is the not-self title of the talk the middle way is finding and getting to know between these two extremes. And in that exploration between these two extremes that exploration is liberating the human being. It is freeing the human being up because there is a sense through the wisdom of life that life in its true nature is not about self-building and self-rejecting. It's a misplaced situation. Sometimes on the uh, the self uh, level, especially if you're in a job, might like, like, like uh, I, I, I have. There's quite a lot of words which are used, which how to say here. Um, somehow, in the spiritual psycho- psychological world somehow wish to reinforce the self. Sometimes we go into bookshops which are tragically and sadly closing down a lot I think something like a third of the bookshops in Britain have closed down in the last ten to fifteen years. It's a sign of the times. And, and there are sections in the bookshop. So sometimes there is the self help section, and we hear a lot about self help. There are huge numbers of books sold, but sometimes, with all the lovely f- comments in the book, why is it so difficult to help ourselves? Why is it so difficult? Sometimes we are told, these are all questions for reflecting on, and I'm just uh, uh, talking for the sake of talking here. There is a common view. We, that's the self, create our own reality. Oh my gosh. Where did that view come from? If we even if we just created our own inner reality and we wake up in the morning and we're feeling worried, anxious, wondering what's gonna what am I going to do today? Or thinking about our future. Are we feeling really unhappy or whatever? If we create our own reality, well why not just wake up and say, oh, I create my own reality because this guru told me. I think I'll create a happy reality today. I'll just be, not today, that's too short. Every day. Do you honestly think your heart and mind is gonna take any notice of this lovely sweet childish idea, I can create my own reality? Have you met anybody who can just create their own reality? The propaganda, the large numbers of book sales, but can the self create its own reality? I haven't seen it, and I've listened to the inner life of as many people as anybody else on this planet. Sometimes, get a little bit closer to home here, just all to question the self. There are more important things in life than the self. We hear, I hear it quite a lot. Actually, mostly over the last five to ten years, you may have heard the word... Self-compassion I appreciate the practices that people may engage in using it Friends, Dharma friends tell me it's helpful and valuable but I have a concern and it's a major one When one is giving oneself a lot of self-compassion it means there will be less for others it can get a little bit self preoccupied. It can be feeding it into I, me, and my. It can be living like a tortoise that's withdrawn into its shell. Self compassion, self compassion. And then adding on at the end. Oh, sata, sukita, hontu. May all beings be happy. Self-compassion, self-compassion, oh, self-compassion, self-compassion. Wow, wow, wow. Mindfulness practice, in summary, is finding a way to observe and notice when the I, the my and the self arises. be as clear as possible about it. In the small groups today, and a little bit yesterday but noticeably today, one of the themes that was referred uh, to, and it's an important area of this, you're engaged in the meditation. You sit, you walk, you stand, you recline. And there may be moments, Short moments, longer time, where there is just the bare experience, just breathing in, just breathing out. And you notice that in that relationship to the experience, some thoughts arise. The recognition of the difference is that the bare experience itself is not thoughts. Thoughts in the language here are words, they are concepts, they are thinking about. We take more interest in the bare experience and our mindfulness is to notice what is the relationship to the experience. And sometimes it is a simple description such as oh. I am sitting here, or right now, I am listening this person, I am speaking. So there is the event, the, in this case the words coming out of the mouth, there is the bare experience of just listening, hopefully, And there may be, with the bare experience, a comment. I am listening. Simple description of the event. The simple description of the event. I am sitting, I am listening. I am sitting, I am speaking. If the Buddha is sitting in the hall, listening, there'll be the sitting and the event and the simple use of language I am sitting and listening to this person right? Clarity is to see that but clarity is to see what happens after this what does the mind, what happens to the mind after this And what happened after this is, imp- is important. It may be I am sitting, I am listening, sitting, speaking. There is a simple description, and one goes back to that. But it may be you move away from the bare experience, and more words and concepts come. Oh God, this is the most boring talk I've ever had to listen and watch in my entire life since I last watched a Hollywood film. How long is it going to go on for? God, he's been talking for half an hour, (laughs) Uh, etc. My knees hurt. I'm tired. What am I doing here, Uh, etc., etc. I wonder what's for tea tonight. Chai and fruit, you know, you know, etc. So sometimes there is the bare event There is the quiet description of the described Did you get the point? The described is just sitting here, you and me talking, you listening, thank you for listening And from the bare description other habits and patterns might start to come in Those other habits and patterns which start to come in can make a mess of your life and the mess of the life you, of people you communicate with. It's not in the event directly. Sometimes closer to, but that's another story. It's not in the bare description. It's what happens, what we do with it. There can be the bare experience, there is the short reflection, this is how it is, just breathing, just sitting, just experiencing the body, bare experience, with a description, and out of that may come, possibly, it's a miracle I know, one line, and it just registers. One person kindly said to myself in one of the groups today, just sitting and listening, Lots of words were used. One of the words that this waller used was witness organic life. And hearing of that, something registered, something touched. The wonderful um, American poet, Mary Oliver, who many of us It's an English understatement to say we love her to bits. We revere her. She's a a patron saint of the Dharma community. And just a few weeks ago, at the age of 83, Mary Oliver left this world and she left us with a a body of poetry which is in a way eternal in the huge truth that it reveals about our relationship with ourselves, with each other, and especially with the nature. I just received yesterday uh, 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 poems, and sometimes the poem, in the shortness of the word, really touches us. And in one of Mary Oliver's uh, uh, poems, one of the most frequently uh, quoted and which some of you will have heard uh, on retreats, she speaks in this, the nuances of, of the nature. And then, forgive me if I haven't got the precise words of Mary, but in the very last sentence, out of the blue, comes the question. What are you going to do with your one wild and precious life? Wow. Wow. What a question. What a question to ask a human being. And we could just, as Rilke, another poet who I loved a bit. his uh, encouragement he said with these kind of questions he says in his letters to the young poet as a a poet myself obviously I have much love of the poets he said live the question live it Sometimes a deep and profound question comes in your meditations, in your day, in your life it comes from the voice of another what are you going to do with your one wild and precious life? Just like the young guy 2,500, 2,600 years ago he left home and Started a a new way of life, exploring, inquiring, questioning, meditating. And his parents said to him, "What the hell do you think you're doing? Leaving your responsibilities, leaving your career, leaving your family duties, the inheritance from your father." Whatever. And he said, "Powerful one-liner." He said, I have looked at your life and I don't want to live like that. 2,600 years ago. Some of us, we looked at our parents' life. We love our parents. We can be very grateful to our parents. We looked at their life the arguing, the shouting, the moodiness, the, in my case, family, slamming of the doors, and much, much else, and said, Thank you no thank you get me out of here <laughs> we were young we were off well, so sometimes we have questions the questions may touch us who am I deep profound question many questions listen to we have done live the question it's revolutionary it's awakening it shakes the life people have come on the retreats they are very quote unquote successful they're rich they're powerful they're CEOs in large companies but deep down something's missing in my view such people are the unsuccessful and sometimes I mean turn up on the retreat and sometimes unexpected they're meditating then I want to reduce the stress Okay, it's a nice idea this is not a stress reduction course it 's a stress destruction retreat it 's a different ball game and a good person doesn 't come and suddenly the very successful man, usually a man, sometimes a woman of course as well he 's high positioned and in the Stress reduction practice. Somewhere from the deep, something comes up and says, My God, I'm 60 years old, I've wasted my life. I've been obsessed with materialism. What have I done with my life? And it's near the end. And the person, has, a few times it happened, has come and has said that to me in so many words and those kind of words and I have said you're right you've wasted it you blew it there's no comfort from Christopher the very wrong person to get the comfort (laughs) but today is today What are you going to do with your one wild and precious life from today? That's the question. Okay, 60. Be grateful, you're only 60, etc. So, life in its vitality and in its questioning. And what is there, the listening inwardly. Which mindfulness, meditation, calmness and clarity is about in order the human being in the deep of the being can listen more deeply. We're not here to be calm human beings, not the purpose of this life. We're not here to feel quite harmonious with ourselves, not the purpose. Or to have a sense of well being or being a kind person. This is all kindergarten. It's that it just generates the opportunity and the potential for us to kind of listen deeply and something from the deep moves us, touches us and what's precious about it and sometimes you and one of the groups today as well we realise that though we are sort of rational, I mean it's an ego trip, saying we're rational human beings, like, <sighs> and, but sometimes we begin to realise the limits of the constructs of the information and knowledge uh, which we have accumulated. It can be helpful and beneficial, the rational world. But actually what is is the profound is outside of the rational, it's something which comes from somewhere else and it so to speak comes through us and it gets us to do things. And for some that movement got us into India. That movement got us out of one place in India and into this place or other places. Something moves and even though the parents bless them, we love them sometimes, and the friends, they may think we are mad. They may have all sorts of views about sitting in silence, etc but we trust in the listening to bring about the action which is the contribution to liberating us. The very initiative to explore is an expression of something which is liberating the being. It is not that liberation is far away. The Buddha says The knowing of liberation is a seeing and a knowing (coughs) and we're already doing something with our one wild and precious life. And all of that expresses a middle way which is not about putting ourselves down or trying to build ourselves up the middle way is the liberating way for us and out of that comes a lot of uh, happiness and joy kindness and empathy and and, uh, much more hang in Stay with it. It's a well trodden path. Has a pretty good track record over the last two or three thousand years. May all beings listen to the deep questions of life. May all beings engage in mindfulness, meditations, and reflections May all beings live with love and live with wisdom Let's have a quiet minute shall we